Okay, welcome back. And making his Danish Dynamite debut is a great friend of mine. He wears many hats in the world of football, but amongst those, he's the founder of Future Global Sports, host of the Nordic Football Podcast, and a regular guest on, I think it's the biggest football podcast anywhere in the world, Guardian Football Weekly. It's Jonathan Fadugba. Welcome to the party, mate. Henry, thank you. Nice to be on the show. Um, thanks for that nice intro. It's, it feels like we've come full circle, obviously, from uh, you, you being a, an esteemed guest on the Nordic Pod. And now I feel proud to see like the show that you're doing doing so well and gone from strength to strength. So, yeah, thanks to thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it, man. And I, I think it was you who gave me the nudge to do it. I kept bugging you saying, oh, can you start featuring Danish football on Nordic Football Podcast? And you were like, listen, if you want it, you're going to have to come and do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, definitely. I definitely feel like you, you know, you've taken it and run with it in, in a really amazing way. So it's been really good to see, mate. Like, just uh, obviously we know each other from a, from a long time, even before Scandinavian football, maybe. So uh, yeah, it's great to see your journey, and uh, yeah, it's, it's good, man. So I'm, I'm happy the podcast is going so well. Ah, cheers, man. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And for quite a number of years, I know you've been into Swedish football. How did you get into it in the first place? Yeah, so it's a uh, long story short. It kind of came about when I began. Well, when we we sort of um, worked with Future Global Sports when we founded it, like we we saw a gap in kind of the Brexit market, obviously, from players maybe from lower leagues moving out abroad. And originally, that was kind of the one of the projects that we were working on at the time. And being the bit of an obsessive that I am, I was like, well, if we're going to do something like that, then I need to immerse myself in it. So. You know, with friends, I'd already had trips to Sweden in the past and, and loved it. And I happened to just meet someone randomly and they were like, listen, I'll try and help you find a, a place if you ever wanted to move here. I think I, I think I joked one day saying, like, I'd love to live here. And someone was like, took me up on it, basically, and was like, I'll find you a place. And they did. So I had to kind of um, stick to my word. Uh, I moved out there and I was just doing a lot of like scouting and um, just getting involved and immersing myself in football. You probably will agree and maybe your listeners will agree as well, like the from an English point of view anyway, like the the relative obscurity of the league makes it kind of in a way quite endearing and appealing if you know what I mean like it's not as hyped as maybe like the English league the Premier League that we we work in it's like it's a little bit more calm and you can get yourself you can get your teeth into it a bit more I think in, in some ways uh, it's a bit more accessible so I threw myself into that and we were kind of I was then helping a close maybe try and find players in Scandinavia and that kind of thing so it was kind of a two-way thing obviously Brexit came along and, and ruined a little bit of that but that wasn't the reason that I kind of moved back. I moved back for other reasons. Um, so yeah, I'd been out in Sweden for um, a while. And, and when I came back, obviously, um, for those who maybe have listened to the Nordic Football Podcast, um, the, the colleague on the show, Steve Wiss, um, he's works in the Nor- he's worked in the Norwegian football world in, 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 from a betting point of view. And we'd worked together at a, a, a company called Football Radar, which is a um, analysis company. We'd worked on the same um, league together. So we become good friends um, doing French football, funnily enough. But because he knew Norwegian football, I was obviously in touch with him and I was every now and then he was asking me about Sweden and we'd have conversations about Sweden and Norway, etc. And we we're having these long conversations and obviously, you know, the best left back in Olsvenskan isn't really a conversation for your for your missus or your wife or, you know, like your friends. Like no one really, you know, in England is maybe it's not mainstream. So um, it's a bit niche. So eventually one day I just said to him, like, why don't we start a podcast? You know, we were talking all this, saying all these things together, chatting all the time about these different players and stuff. Why don't we... Uh, you know create a podcast and so that's yeah that's pretty much how it came about <laughs> amazing man amazing and what do you think it is that continues to to draw you to it like to this day because I can understand you know that initial excitement something new something to to get your teeth into but you know we're now 
however many years, seven, eight years down the line? Like, what is it that keeps you coming back? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, partly just out of commitment and, you know, wanting to continue it. Partly, um, I guess I'm someone that doesn't really give up on projects too easily, if you know what I mean. I think once I start something, I generally try and see it through, which uh, has its pros and cons, I think. Um but yeah, I think the main reason is like just I really enjoy it. I really enjoy the league. Obviously, I've, the podcast has grown a following that you know it's like a little community now that I've enjoyed. And obviously, you know you've you've built your your community as well from your podcast. You know, in, in super quick time, and you, you probably understand that as well. And your listeners probably understand that you just get that feeling and that kind of like um, that connection. Um, the league itself is quite attractive in the sense that it's a summer league, obviously, and that, that's a conversation we could probably have, you know, that the Swedish league is, it kind of like coincides with the end of the Premier League, if that makes sense, to a certain extent. The league starts in April, that's near the end of the season in, in England, and it ends in November, which is the, you know, obviously mid-season in England, but you've got that whole summer, so you can kind of concentrate on it. Um, so it is a little bit of a free time in, in, in the schedule in terms of my other commitments. Um, and then just love because, you know, I've followed the league, like I really got intensely into it, like maybe... From an analysis point of view, like I we say on the pod, we keep we've had like databases of these players for like for many years. So every year, I kind of like update that database and have a good, really sort of de- deep knowledge of, of of players. And I just like to see where their journeys go. I like to keep an eye on like the young talents, keep tabs on the league, and just kind of be a a resource maybe for for people. And it's led to business opportunities as well. And I've been fortunate enough to to um, get opportunities from that. So yeah, I think I think the passion for it and and maybe a little bit of geeky. Um, sort of uh, commitment to it as well I recently went out there after a few years not being in Sweden obviously due to the pandemic and it kind of just rekindled my, my feeling and my love for it you know it's a it's a great country I really like I said I like the league in terms of um, the level of it I like it as a launch pad to Europe as well like it's quality of the league I think it's quite good and um, I'm someone who's happy watching all different leagues you know what I mean I don't need to be sort of watching um, the Premier League week in week out so I like that contrast as well yeah, I think the guys who sit next to me at Arsenal are bored to tears of the number of players I point out and go, that guy used to play in the Super League. I was doing it last week against Southampton when uh, Kamal Dean Suleiman came off the bench. I was like, watch this guy. He's absolutely mustard. Wait for it. And he didn't really do anything. But <laughs> yeah. but I'm similar. I like to see those journeys of players. And, you know, you've got receipts going back a long time. I remember you t- telling me about Alexander Isak when he was uh, at Icor and, you know, look where he is now, man. So I think that your talent ID is uh, exactly where it needed to be. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's very similar to what you just said about Suleiman. It's like um, you're in a way sort of telling everyone and, and by the time they're big, like no one really cares because they're already, like, at a big club, but you, you've got the history and the receipts to sort of show that you, you know, it's, it's nice as well because it confirms your eye. It confirms like what you saw in the first place when they were kind of not doing so well. And sometimes you get players who don't make it, if you know what I mean, on, to that that high level that maybe you thought would and that's something I'm really passionate about in my work and and, and in my sort of um work life of, of like the, the the pathway of the player pathway of, of football is like how like how it goes and what stops it and the different challenges and sometimes you have a gem that doesn't make it um sometimes you have players that you don't expect that do make it and uh, that is something that really that's like a puzzle I, I really enjoy unlocking and so I think that the obscure leagues do appeal to me in that sense of, you know, trying to pick those ones out and find them. And so, yeah, I'm sure you probably agree as well, like, you know, to a certain extent, and I'm sure your listeners probably would um, as well. Yeah, for sure. And we all know if there's a, if there's a player you tip who doesn't end up making it, just delete the tweets. 
Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> I've still got my Benjamin Negan tweets there, like somewhere. So we Mate, can probably talk about him a bit later. But <laughs> he scored tonight for for FC Norseland. He scored a really important goal, and Norseland are now one point behind uh, FC Copenhagen with two games to go. So he, you know, he took his chance well. He started for he hasn't really started many games this season, but he, he started tonight, and uh, yeah, well taken goal. So we are going to talk about him. I have one more question around. Well, the practicalities. So first, firstly, how do you watch Swedish football and how does it fit in with your week? Because for me, the Super League games are, there's one on Friday, there's one on Monday and there's four on Sunday. So I kind of, w- w- within all my other commitments and my other football watching, I kind of have games plugged into those slots. But h- how does it work in Sweden? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, I've kind of got into a routine where, I mean, in terms of how you watch it, that unfortunately, like I do believe that Discovery own the rights in England. And I think they do actually there is a way that I believe you can watch it on Amazon Prime, but I'm not entirely sure as of this season. Um, I have a software just due to another a work, uh, just to, due to another role that allows me to watch games. And also, you can also watch it uh, on betting sites, for example, which isn't ideal if, you, if that's not your thing, but obviously you can sign up. And if you have an account, um, all Svenskans scans are available on those sites, which is a, sometimes a good way, although the, the screen isn't exactly amazing. It's like a small screen, that kind of thing. But obviously it'll have to do. I've got into a nice routine because the league starts in April. So usually March preparation starts for the new season in terms of just updating um, spreadsheets and things like that, trying to figure out like what players are moving and that just going through all that for the season preview, which is obviously one of the biggest shows of the year and and the, um, getting players to watch and things like that, preparing who, who's, who's leaving, who's coming. And then in that kind of period, like which we're in now, which is when the Premier League season is kind of ending, that's when you, I, I tend to watch games maybe on the, there's games on the Saturday and Sunday and then there's a Monday evening game. So I tend to try and watch um, a couple of games at the weekend if it's maybe a couple of Sunday games and, a mon- and then the Monday game or if I've got time on a Saturday sometimes. It can it can be a, an issue later in the season because you have, um, you know, the, obviously the Premier League starts. So from, from August, it can be a little bit more challenging, I'd say, between August and, and November. But uh, I tend to, try and find as much time as possible to at least catch one or two games a week and and then obviously recording the show so that's pretty much how, how I do it and is there a uh, would you say like a dominant style of play or a dominant formation uh within the league yeah it's a good question because tactically we had a we had a show about two years ago I think where we went into every single team's tactics and kind of broke down um there was just a new wave in Sweden suddenly, I think, that came about. I think you could probably actually link it back to Graham Potter at Ostersunds. Um, when he came and the job he did there, Sweden was kind of for a while known as like a 4-4-2 league, really, and everyone just sort of had two banks of four, Atletico Madrid style, and, and maybe a little bit of variation, but very much kind of um, quite quite similar styles. Um, Graham Potter came in, and I'm not saying he was the main person that revolutionised it, but he definitely, I think, played a role in in changing that a little bit in in, in Swedish football, um, which kind of harks back to obviously Roy Hodgson, who who managed in in, in Sweden as well um, when he managed the sort of Malmo teams and things like that. He, he he had a really good, he's got a really good reputation in Sweden, Hodgson, and he was kind of thought of as a bit of an innovator at the time. So it's, it's a similar sort of English link there, but. Um, yeah, Potter came in and he had just different styles, different ways of motivating players. And I, th- I think you could trend it from there. You started to see more different styles, 3-4-3s, 3-5-2s. If you look at the league now, you've got sort of top teams, maybe like Malmo at the moment, who uh, who play a kind of possession game under the manager that they have, who's, who's a really highly rated manager. You have kind of 
the team that won the league, Beckel Hacken, who who are really sort of fast transitions, counter-attacking, attacking, speedy team. Um, maybe similar to some teams you might associate in Denmark um, and have that 4-3-3 style really quick on the counter if, you, if they break you down. Then you've, got, then you've got kind of some of the smaller teams even we see now. Like I mean, not one team that I was at when I was in, in Gothenburg um, this month on a trip, um, Degaforce, for example, who are a lower team, they have a sort of interesting 3-4-3 style where it very much relies on the, the wing backs to kind of play diagonal overheads to, to out wide to the other flank. So um, it, it doesn't work all the time. I mean, the game I watched, they lost 6-0, but they, you know, there is a lot more innovation these days, I'd say, in the last two two or three years. Obviously, a bit like, um, a bit like anywhere, really. I, I tend to think of football at the moment as like Pep Guardiola is at the top in terms of innovation and everyone else kind of tends to, to follow. So I, I can imagine in the next few years, maybe we'll start to see, you know, fullbacks inverting and that kind of thing as, as he's been doing with that, that City team. Um, but... At the moment, I'd probably say the four-three-three is four-two-three-one is still a predominant formation, but there's a lot of variation now, and and teams are quite tactically flexible. I think, which has been really good actually. It's, it's made the league, I think, more entertaining to watch. Definitely from my point of view. Yeah, and you, you mentioned Roy Hodgson actually, and he's a bit of a, a Scandinavian or a Nordic legend because <laughs> he managed in Sweden, but he also won the league with uh, FC Copenhagen. He he managed Viking in Norway, and he was the Finland national team manager. So he's been on tour big time in the, in that region of the world. Yeah, he's considered like he's considered like a hero in Sweden in terms of Mal- what he did at Malmo, and he's really considered as like an in, in, innovator. And I think that's probably you might agree as well, Henry. Like that's one of the interesting things about um, following a different league closely is like the perceptions you get. You know what I mean? Like perceptions you get maybe in, in the English media of Hodgson, for example, are very different to like how he's perceived elsewhere. And I think I enjoy that. It gives you anyone who likes traveling, obviously, that can understand that you get different perspectives when you travel, if you know what I mean, and you, you hear different opinions, different people's points of view. And that's one thing I, I, I enjoy about it as well. It's like you hear things from a different narrative, different perspective. And yeah, like you said, Hodgson is <laughs> like, he's a bit of a legend in, 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 in that part of the world, which I guess if you said that to a lot of people in England, they wouldn't really have him as an innovator. Yeah, I, I do like the fact that there is an alternative perspective out there. And I think it's so easy to be blinded by uh, the limited perspective we have watching English football. So, you know, if I take a player, for example, like Andreas Cornelius, if you ask anyone in England, have you heard of him? They'll go, yeah, he's the guy who flopped at Cardiff. But <laughs> you ask anyone in uh, in Denmark and they'll have a completely different opinion because, you know, he's had three stints at FC Copenhagen and was very dominant for the large parts of that so yeah I think it's important that uh you know we take this perspective we have and and apply it because there's a whole bunch of players where I think there's a narrative already written because of their their time in in England or or Scotland and actually the the reality is uh is something a bit different yeah I totally agree with that there's a big wide world out there and I think um I think that's part of the 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 interest I guess and I'm sure you probably may, may agree as well it's just that just having that, those different perspectives and, and and seeing the world from a different angle, maybe in the football world as well, because like you say, Cornelius or or Hodgson, or you know, there's so many characters that you can kind of look at, and I suppose it makes you realise in a way how big the Premier League is in 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 the sense of like the scale of it, what what it means. It's kind of the top of the food chain, but but and and the difficulty of getting there, if you know what I mean, in terms of the starting if you're starting in these maybe quote unquote second tier leagues maybe trying to get there it's, it's, a, it's a hard journey I think it makes you appreciate it a bit more as well and from that perspective and how 
how difficult it is to make it. And on the topic of team styles, I know in in Denmark there are teams that perhaps unfairly uh, 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 have a kind of a label for their style that tends to surpass individual managers. So, you know, AGF, for example, are known as being very physical, FC Norgeland, very technical. Are there any teams in Sweden that have a, a style that has kind of endured long periods? I think it's fluid because you, maybe Denmark is a slightly to a slightly lesser extent, but in Sweden, you definitely don't get much time with players. So if they are good, you tend to... Um, you tend to have Belgium knocking at the door within six months or so. So it's very, I think it's hard from that point of view to really um, build some sort of legacy, if that makes sense. Man, you know, let's take an example, Yondal Thomason's Malmo. You know, he was there sort of a couple of seasons and then he got uh, the, now he's obviously a Blackburn Rovers and, and got a big job. I think if you do well, you're on the radar quite quickly, both from a playing perspective and, and a managerial perspective. Potter um, coming from, you know, the third, fourth tier in, in Sweden and, and building that team into sort of Swedish Cup winners and getting into the Europa League. That's that's something that, you know, was a long, long running sort of dynasty that he created. But I mean, it's, it's hard to, I think it's hard to create that unless you're at one of the bigger clubs. And, and the, the challenge for the bigger clubs is like, you're still small in terms of the, the football ecosystem and the food chain. You know, your best player um, could take Malmo as an example, Hugo Larsson. Um, at the moment, he's he's only 18 years old. He's already signed two contracts in his career and he's already been had a bid from Bournemouth for 12, 12 million euros. So even your project players, it's really hard to, you know, if they, they can be project players to a certain point, but once they get to um, a level of doing well, it's very, very hard to keep them. So I think from that point of view, it's quite hard. You're always, the league's always regenerating and I think the stars are always regenerating based on that. I think if I was to highlight one 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 manager, maybe it would be Henrik Henrik Riesstrom at Malmo. He's a good example of a manager that has been really stuck to his philosophical style of possession-based football. Um, he's coached three different teams in the last sort of uh, three four years: um, Sirius, Kalmar, and and now Malmo. And, and every team he's he's coached, they've been the best team in the league or top two in the league in terms of possession. And that's gone right through from a really small team to like a one of the big team now who are top of the league. So that a possession style and ability to translate it to different clubs has been really impressive. And I think he will end up having a big job somewhere else in, in Europe. But I, th- I guess to answer your question, it, it can be quite difficult to get that time to really build a, a pr- predominant tactical style, if that makes sense. Yeah. And actually th- that approach, you talked about the possession-based approach that that fits very well with uh, a team in Denmark, uh, Silkeborg under Kent Nielsen, that, you know, they consistently are the lowest pressing, highest possession, highest passing team in, in the Superliga. And uh, that, that has served them reasonably well until the, the final part of this season. One of the, the things that came out of the interview earlier with Vito Hamashoi Mistrati was he said that, you know, having played in the Superliga and, and the Allsvenskan, he's reasonably well placed to be able to, to to talk about the strengths and he, he said actually the the strength of the two leagues feels almost identical but the big difference is that obviously the Superliga has 12 teams and Allsvenskan has 16 and he said that if uh, if the league was to go from 16 to 12 teams it would be really really competitive but it's the it's those extra four teams that drag the overall quality down would you agree with that and would you like to see the league tighten up a bit and, and move to fewer teams? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question and a good point. And funnily enough, I was reading something the other day about Scotland and there were calls from managers in Scotland, I think in the lower tiers, to sort of uh, increase the amount of teams in the SPL because they were arguing that it's, it's almost too hard. They have a really convoluted playoff system. Um, well, not convoluted, but you have if you finish sort of runner-up in, le- in the lower tiers, you kind of go through a playoff and then you play like maybe the relegated team, the, one of the relegated teams 
in in this SPL. So the point was being made that it's really hard to actually get promoted into that top tier, and then that means that it's really hard to develop as as football clubs because you're always the odds are you're not going to make it rather than you are going to make it. Another good example is uh, Spain's Segunda Liga. That's really the the system, playoff system there is like is really crazy in terms of how many different um, teams in different regions you have to play against and to to maybe get that one promotion place. I probably wouldn't agree. I think if it was last year, I'd probably have to agree with Vito in the sense of last year there was one just outstandingly quite poor team, Gisundsvall, who really struggled, and that meant that basically they really couldn't. You know, it was almost a bit of a a, a, a dead game when he played against them. It was they were just getting thrashed left, right, and centre. I think that. But overall, I do think that the, the, there has been a decent balance in Sweden in terms of the 16 teams. It's, it's usually quite competitive. I mean, if you look at the league now, uh, Bromma Poikina, who were in the third tier two years ago, um, they've had back-to-back promotions and now they're, do, they're doing really well in Osvenskan. Um, at the same time, you've got maybe teams that come up and, and maybe can can struggle a little bit. But I wouldn't want to reduce it to 12 teams. I think I think that would only make the the sort of bigger teams maybe even more even bigger, if that makes sense, and there'd be fewer games. So... I do like a 16-team league. It's a 30-game season. It's kind of, you know, you play each other twice. It's not... I prefer that to say, for example, a Scottish system where you you start playing teams three, four times. I'm of, I'm of, I'm of, the, I'm of the feeling that home and away is, is the good way to do it. So I'm pretty comfortable with how it is. Maybe, yeah, the, there are a few teams that... I think when you go into the Super S and the second tier in Sweden, it's a little bit... There is a little bit of a difference in quality. But we have seen teams compete in teams like Ostersunds. I know they had financial issues, but we have seen teams come up and, and 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 be competitive okay interesting another point that i wanted to bring up was that certainly when we were growing up in the the mid 90s sweden felt like the the strongest of the the nordic countries i remember ifk gothenburg more or less you know being in the champions league pretty often and it feels now like sweden is very much behind denmark in terms of european performance i had a look through uh, Swedish teams in uh, in Europe in the last 10 years and there are only seven teams that made it three Champions League group stages uh, in the last 10 years three Europa League group stages in the last 10 years and one Conference League and uh, in comparison Denmark's had 17 so four Champions League group stage entrants nine Europa League group stages and four Conference League group stage uh, entrants w- what do you think's the reason behind that shift it, you know does it come down to finances does it come down to player development i know that the, the danish teams have made a, a lot of big sales recently you know north of 10 million euros which is uh heady days for for the, the nordic region but what, what's been behind that shift and you know would you agree that sort of denmark is top at the moment and then sweden and then norway or would you have it a different order yeah it's a great question i think that um I think a lot of it is down to finances, just in the sense of you know what I say, Henry. I think the I think the biggest thing from a financial point of view is the the challenge uh, of the summer window. I think the summer transfer window is a killer for uh, Swedish teams because you're basically play, you're basically mid season. The, the timings of the transfer window, obviously, the European mainstream transfer window is is in that summer period, and there is a transfer window in Sweden in that period, and basically you get midway through a season and they have a midsummer break. So you know. I think from June 8th, I think is that this season's a midsummer break. There's no games till July. So basically what happens is the the big teams, let's say you've won the league in the season before that, you've then got a long winter where there's no games, where your opponents are playing week in, week out, if you know what I mean. Let's say you're playing a team from, I don't know, Cyprus or somewhere like that. You've got teams playing their, their season out, whereas you've got, say, three, four months not really playing much. You then get into your rhythm sort of April, May, um, 
And then by the time that you, you're into a little bit of rhythm, June comes along, June, June, July transfer window. So the best players tend to maybe leave around then. So it's very hard to keep players to see out the full actual European season to, to then be competitive in Europe. So if you were to compare, um, you know, let's take Bikwak and the champions of Sweden now. There's a good chance that by the time they play their European qualifiers, they'll have lost a couple of their best players because of the fact that the transfer window is opening in June. So I think that's a timing issue that the timing of the league and, and when it placed, I don't think helps. Um, and just the reality of the finances that they can't keep these top players. You know, um, I it's like a regular running joke on the Nordic podcast, football podcast, where it's like it doesn't take, you know, a player to sort of get two goals and two assists and they're off to they're off to Belgium basically if you know what I mean or something <laughs> like that. And Negren's the one that always was a joke to me in that sense of like um, a running joke because he was in Sweden for so little time before he got a move and it's happened so often. So I think that that is a, a real challenge because you're you know you've got a stream of qualifiers to go through to get to these leagues and maybe with the invention of the Conference League. I mean, Jurgen had a really good Conference League run um, last season, you know, managing to get to the knockout stages, which is, you know, I think a big achievement in, in Swedish football. It's not something that's really happening too often these days. Uh, Malmo had a really tough time when they, under Thomason were in the Champions League. Um, it's a couple of years ago now with, um, you know, they lost to Juventus, Chelsea. They were pretty, they, their group was pretty, um, Zenit as well. I think they were, you know, they finished bottom of the group and really struggled to get any kind of points. But like I say, the key issue is that they can't, it's a real struggle to keep those top players that got them there in the first place and then strengthen as well to be competitive. So I think it's a mixture of like the league, the quality of the league, obviously you're you're playing bigger leagues strength-wise, but you're also losing maybe some of your key men at a crucial time of the season, whereas other teams are signing players at that point of the season, if that makes sense. So I think that's the, that's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And the, this sort of idea of a, a summer league is something that I've uh, I've talked about recently because I think there's it's not a, a complete open goal but I do think there's an opportunity maybe for the Superliga to head down that path just because I think that in some ways I I, I know the I know losing players is a, a big disadvantage and I know that that comes with it but I think in some ways it helps your chances in Europe uh, if you have a reasonably settled squad because by the time you hit those qualifiers that normally happen in July, you know, your season is underway and you, you're hitting teams who are probably playing quite cold. Uh, and I think about, uh, for example, AGF lost last season in the first round of the uh, the European qualifiers to Lan from Northern Ireland. And I, I, I feel like it was probably one of AGF's first games of the season and that really cost them there. And so I do wonder, you know, given that the, the winter break is over 80 days in, in Denmark, the, the weather is, as it is in Sweden, cold and miserable for, for the, the winter. I do wonder whether there's a, a case for it, but it, it sounds like you're exercising extreme caution with that, uh, with that approach. Yeah, no, you make a really good point there as well. And, and it's something, it's kind of like two sides of a coin, isn't it? And it's hard to know which which one to go towards. Sometimes it can just be preparation. I remember we had a guest once on the show and I th- I mean, they were basic, making the point that they were almost bored of like the, the long break. You know, they'd had so long just coaching and training, waiting for the season to start, um, you know, from sort of November to April. It's, it's a long time. So yeah. that rhythm is sometimes missing and, and that can be that can be a factor. But at the same time, there's a freshness maybe as well. So it's hard to it's hard to balance that and I guess it comes on a team by team basis 
I think at the end of the day, I, I would I would put the main thing down to the fact that it's just player retention is harder. And I think the finances are getting better in Scandinavia in general. If you look at Norway as well, I, I think, you know, you've got teams like Glimt beating Roma 6-1 not too long ago. I think the strength of the, those leagues are getting better due to player sales. I think I think transact, financial transactions are getting better and the leagues are getting stronger from that point of view because they're producing so much talent. But it, it obviously takes its toll at a certain point. There's only so many top players you can produce um, over a consistent period of time. So there's a fine balance to be had. And I think sometimes when I'm commenting on Sweden, there's leagues where, there's get there's teams, sorry, where it's fairly clear that they're almost operated just to make a profit, turn a profit in terms of player sales. And that's almost driving the driving the club policy rather than maybe competing for titles. And so so that balance is hard, hard to get. But um, yeah, it's a tough one to answer because obviously, you do have teams, maybe like you said, Lan. There are other 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 teams like that who who have similar issues and, and manage to to pull off a few upsets here and there. So yeah, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly why, but I think it's a combination of obviously finances, league timings, and then just that 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 window and and preparation. Given Denmark and Sweden and a bunch of other Nordic countries are not playing in those first couple of months of the year, I wonder if there's a case to bring back the the Royal League. For anyone anyone listening who doesn't know about the Royal League, it was this. Uh, strange tournament that took place between 2004-2007, inviting teams from Denmark, Norway and Sweden. And uh, I'm not bringing it up just because the only three winners were Danish teams. Um, (laughs) FC Copenhagen won twice, Bromby won once. But it it looked like quite an interesting thing. 12 teams across three groups. Maybe they could bring that back for the the winter months and, uh, I don't know, play uh, play it indoors or something. Yeah, we do get a lot of questions about the Royal League, actually. So I don't know if it's held in the sort of fondness in the region. Uh, obviously, it's before I covered the league, so you know, it's not something that I covered at the time. But um, definitely, I feel like there's a little bit of nostalgia around it. It's an interesting tournament. We, I think we had one pod where we actually went into the history of it and, and properly looked at like the history of the winners and, and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it could come back as an as a end, you know, end of season tournament or, or something along those lines. I mean, that, you tend to get that a lot anyway. There's all these, these sort of training camps, aren't there, in Marbella, where a lot of um, mm. Scandinavian teams basically play against each other. So maybe some clever marketers could actually maybe reconceptualize it in some way in the future who knows maybe i'm giving away an idea here but i think it probably hasn't has could have legs in some way i mean there's obviously the rivalries you know there's parts of sweden that are pretty much on the border you know pretty much right next you know closer to get to than it's closer to get to denmark than than other parts of sweden if you know what i mean so Mm. from a from that perspective it could be easy to sort out i think it was ended because there was a lack of appetite attendance wise i believe or Something along the lines of commercial lines. I can't remember exactly the reason it stopped. But. Yeah, they couldn't sell the TV rights for the... Uh, I think there was an edition planned for 2008. They couldn't sell the TV rights, so they binned it. Yeah, but in the age of sort of streaming FIFA TV and stuff like that, maybe maybe that could be revisited. Who knows? Maybe maybe, uh, maybe you and I should start this league. Then. <laughs> I feel like, you, you know, that meme with Alan Partridge speaking into a, uh, <laughs> speaking into a uh, voice recorder. I feel yeah. like uh, the Royal League Nordic teams in Marbella. <laughs> Really revisited. <laughs> Bring sunscreen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Call up Lynn. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I wanted to touch on some players who've moved in both directions because uh, although we can both share in the misery of having our best players poached by the Belgian league, uh, that there have been some players who, who've gone directly between Denmark and Sweden and and sometimes via Belgium. There were a few players, firstly, who've who've come from Sweden. And I, I remember, I'm going to just reel off some names, but Eric Karl came from uh, Icor, very sort of hotly tipped left back. Uh, Rooney Bardaji obviously came from the academy in Malmo. 
uh, Isaac Bergman uh, Johannesson, uh, I know is a big favorite of yours, and obviously Benjamin, Benjamin Negrin. I wonder, have you kept tabs on them since they've gone, or, or do you want me to give a little bit of an update? <laughs> and, and did you have high hopes for, for any of those in particular? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to get an update for sure. You know, I follow your page closely. So whenever there's mentions of sort of those kind of players, I'm definitely, I'm always look, keeping an eye on it. You know, Bayaji, as you mentioned, never really was in, in Sweden for long. So he wasn't, I don't believe, at first team level. So he's not, not someone that I've really watched that much. Carl was someone who was quite highly rated at, at Oikor. Uh, and he, yeah, I remember he was sold to, was it, I think it was Ahus, as you mentioned. Yeah. And... He was a decent player, um, maybe not a top talent, I think, but he was one that was quite quite highly thought of. There's a lot of talent, obviously, in in the teams in Stockholm, uh, and they tend to sort of sell them at a profit quite quite quickly if they're doing well. Um, so so it didn't really surprise me. Uh, and then who was the other player that you just mentioned? Um, Johannesson. Yeah, he well he's the one that, uh, as you mentioned, yeah, I, I love that player. I think he's a fantastic talent. Um, he was in one of our ten to what early ten to watches. Yeah, I remember always making the joke about him being born in Sutton Coalfield and and sort of Gareth Southgate should should call him up. Yeah, I'd love to know how he's getting on. I mean, yeah, it didn't never it didn't surprise me that he got a big move, and I thought I thought it was quite a sensible move as well that he made. Um, there is that link I think from North Shopping to Denmark. Dem- um, they currently have a Danish manager actually, North Shopping mm. uh, in Glenn Riddersholm, who's at Michelin, I believe. So it felt like a natural fit. I think also behind the scenes, I think the I think they have uh, links with uh, clubs there so yeah that 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 did interest me how how's he getting on yeah I, th- I think the the weird one is he came in with uh, a lot of fanfare and you know he was only 18 he's still only 20 so it, in terms of you know player's career he's still at the in the formative stages and yet he's he's two seasons in and I think that when I watched what he'd done in in Sweden and then saw him being deployed as a as a winger for for FC Copenhagen it didn't really the two things didn't really compute for me I thought he he looks like a player who's much more comfortable further back and certainly when he's played as more of a a left eight he looks like he's able to put that really good range of passing to use uh but he has tended to play most of his minutes further up the field FC Copenhagen like the inverted wingers and he he's played there and you know to be fair to him he's not a starter and yet he's he's made the most of the the opportunities he's got and has has stood out to me as a, a really technically sound player and someone who I think has a real future in, in Copenhagen. I think FC Copenhagen's midfield uh, has been dominated by by older players, you know, uh, Rasmus Falk, Zeka, even even guys like Lucas Leria uh, are getting on a bit. And so I think there's an opportunity for him to come in and he, he, he looks like, a you, you know, a, an old head on young shoulders, very, um, very composed, very technically sound. So I, I think that he, he's not quite been the superstar that I was maybe expecting but I think that he's uh he's definitely shown a lot of promise I think um go, going on to, to Eric Carl I was speaking to uh an AGF supporter who was c- kind of mirrored my thoughts although I, I don't watch every AGF game that he's you know he's promising but he hasn't really fulfilled the the initial promise yet and again still still young but he's not blown me away and there are a number of you know really phenomenal fullbacks in the league who, who have blown me away and have been able to to perform so it you know it could just be a bit more adaptation I know moving away from home to a, a different country at that age must be quite tricky so yeah I think that the jury's still out on on Carl as I mentioned earlier Negrin really hasn't played that much for for Norgeland. He has scored a few goals off the bench but you know here and there uh, but but maybe his goal tonight is a sign of um of something to come and 
think he does have the number nine shirt, which uh, is uh, perhaps some indication of uh, of how he's viewed. Rooney Bardaji is a really strange one because he burst onto the scene, you know, I think a few days after his 16th birthday when he was actually allowed to play first team football for the first time. He started, was man of the match. And it feels like this season he's played fewer minutes than he did last season. So I don't quite know what's going on there. I know there's a lot of competition for places. I know he's still a young guy, but it feels like maybe Jakob Niestrup doesn't trust him as much as yes Thorup did so jury's still out there but I was definitely pleased that there were some talents heading to Denmark from from Sweden because uh it, it gives me uh gives me the opportunity to speak to you about it yeah 100% and um I mean I, th- I what you say tallies with kind of how I my feelings that like Carl Carl wasn't really like it wasn't you know, sometimes there's players that you lose and you're devastated sometimes there's players you lose and you kind of just accept the political realities I think Carl was one of them for Oiko it wasn't like a he wasn't like a marquee player at the time. I don't think really. It was kind of a he was a good talent developing, and 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 that's why he uh, he kind of left. It reminds me of me a bit of uh, Beko Hacken. They had a couple of players who moved to to Denmark. Uh, the twins, Joel Anderson, yeah, and, uh, who moved to Rosenborg. But um, yeah, similar kind of thing that when I was actually out in Sweden at the time, they were at Beko Hacken, and they were really there was a lot of talk about them, and they were quite highly rated. But there was always a realization that they'd move on. The landscape changed now. Hacken have completely you know grown since then and gone on and won the league for the first time in their in their history but it, it's a similar feeling to that in terms of where Carl's Carl stood but just on Bergman and Henderson there Henry you, you're totally right in, in the sense that he was like a marquee player really for the, for not only uh North Shopping I think but also Svenskan he was one who was really he reminded me a bit of Frank Lampard and, and I think one of the things that just to touch on you've you described him really well as a, as a player but his uh his mentality and that was the thing that always stood out to me and that's why the move to um to uh, to Denmark never really surprised me in the sense he he turned down I think um, I think he turned down Juventus at one point when he was coming through um, as, and I remember Jonathan Levi who's um, one of his team who used to be one of his teammates said that there's not many 17 year olds you get who are so focused and serious about football and I remember like some interviews he'd given where he's kind of saying that he's got a pl- plan for his career he's got a pathway. He wants to make it in a careful way, if you know what I mean. You know, they don't just want to go and take take the money at a massive club without any kind of maybe prospect of playing. And that always impressed me with Bergman Johansson. So I think he's carefully planning his his career. He had a great maturity about him, about what he needs to improve and learn before he can even leave Sweden. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to, to sort of hear an update from your point of view in terms of where he is at, at the moment. But I think one thing's for sure, he's definitely got a good head on his shoulders in terms of and a seriousness to improve and, and realise where he is. Hearing that reminds me a lot of uh, Andreas Sheldrup, who moved to Denmark as a teenager uh, from Bode Glimt. And there was stories that he'd turned down Liverpool in doing that. And he was very convinced that he was going to make his name there uh, and, and kind of earn the move um, on his terms rather than just kind of, I don't know, taking the first big club that, that shows interest. And he was the outstanding player of the first half of this season and got a big move to Benfica. So I, I think that's testament to the, the quality he's got. And I could see if Johansson starts breaking into the first team, I could see him making a, a similar leap in the next sort of 12, 18 months. Yeah, and he's a player that I, I, I um, obviously uh, we had him on the show, didn't it, when we were in Denmark one time? We did indeed. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was fantastic to get some words with him. Yeah, to get to get him before he uh, he disappeared. That was this season, bizarrely. I, I said the other week, it feels like this season's gone on forever. And, uh, <laughs> hard, hard to think that was this season, but yeah, it was. There's a few players who have headed in the opposite direction. Of course, uh, friend of the pod, Vito, but also Victor Fisher, uh, who was, you know, one of the kind of 
feels like one of the top talents in European football at one point when he was at Ajax. There's uh, Felenius and uh, also Mikael Rijgaard. Uh, I'd be interested to know how are those guys getting on and uh, do, do they do they look like they've taken to Swedish football? Yes, um, good timing to ask me that because uh, obviously being out in Sweden recently, I saw two of, two of them live. Uh, Felenius is at Jurgarden now, I believe, um, if I'm thinking of the right Felenius, uh, which I think I am. Um, and... Um, and Mikael Rigord has been an unbelievable signing. He's probably been one of the best signings of the last two years in, in Sweden. Completely transformed Hacken into champions for the first time in their history. Uh, he's a brilliant midfield player who who I'd say is almost too good for Sweden in a sense. I know he's a bit of a veteran now, um, but he was a crucial winner. Pops up with assists, goals. Uh, fa- fantastic player, really. I, I, I really think he's a, he's a he's a great talent. I didn't get to see him in Sweden actually, but because he had a bit of an injury. But I've seen him play live before, and yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful player. The other player that you mentioned, Victor Fischer. Yeah, that, now that's an interesting story. He's not really having the best of time things at the moment. It's been a big, been actually one of the main talking points in in Sweden this season in Osvenskan is um, Oikor and their kind of uh, their trajectory and and some of the signings they've made. There's been a lot of questions. Obviously, I won't go into too much details on it, um, but he, he's definitely not stood out so far. I think both he and the club would probably be a little bit disappointed with how things have gone. Um, he's such a massive name and such a big you know, profile. I remember when he was young, he was really tipped wasn't he, to be like a superstar, really. Um, Oikor currently is third from bottom, which is a massive, obviously, uh, underachievement. There's a lot of pressure uh, at the club for... Um, signings, who's led the signings, links with sort of payments to agents and um, mysterious payments and things like that, mysterious signings. And I, I think Fisher's not played into that necessarily that part of it, but he's he's just played into this feeling that Oikor's recruitment hasn't hasn't really been right. There was an issue at the start of the season where he he couldn't play, I think, on one of the artificial surfaces because obviously it's not a, um, doesn't really benefit him. You know, I think body wise, f- physically, a bit of a challenge for him. I know he's had injuries and. Um, I think it's a little bit harsh in a way but because he's such a big star there's a lot of attention on him and an expectation for him to perform immediately um i think he's played 100 games for ajax and fc copenhagen as you mentioned there Copenhagen. so there's that expectation that he'd come into sweden and be a dominant player from day one but he's been sort of in and out of the team they have a new manager who's kind of left him out at times and every time he's left out it's a big talking point like why isn't he playing and why aren't you playing him and what you know who, when is he going to play and that kind of thing so He's been a really interesting one. Um, obviously, he's 28, I think, now, to maybe going on 29. So he's getting to the sort of um, latter part of his career. And I'd like to think he will show everyone his qualities because he has had really good qualities. But it m- might also be partly the environment. I think he's in a cl- club at Oikor where there's a lot, there's been a lot of sort of um, older players signed. He, he plays into that kind of theme of like there's, they've signed a few older players who have come back and not only not really impressed, but struggle to get in the team. And obviously, because of their big name, big wage, um, then that leads to the question marks and um, they have a relatively inexperienced manager. So it's all playing into a bit of a storm at Oyeko at the moment. So that's been an interesting talking point in, in, in Sweden this season so far. But unfortunately for him, um, it's not quite looking like um, it's worked out, that signing, as, as of speaking now. Yeah, it feels a bit like, if I remember correctly, the end of his time at FC Copenhagen, where in a similar way, you know, when he was left out, there would be um, big stories about that. And he, he was obviously such a big name when he came back to, to Copenhagen, having played at Ajax, played in the Premier League for Middlesbrough, I believe. And so, yeah, it, it, it became a bit of a circus and he, he got a move to Belgium and 
don't think it really worked out there. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what his next move is. And I, I wonder whether, uh, you know, he's obviously been at big clubs, you know, Icor, big, you know, huge club, uh, same with FC Copenhagen. Uh, I wonder if maybe he needs to uh, become like a bit of a talisman, a, a sort of middling team and uh, and feel the responsibility that, that comes with that again, maybe. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing that Oiko have. They've brought a lot of new players. Um, most of them are kind of a bit older in years. There's a few young talents they have, but you know they they tend to be a club that goes for experience. John Guidetti is another one they have. Jimmy Dumas, um, that maybe they bring from maybe players who have been at much bigger clubs in the past. I think I think from Fisher's point of view, it, it's one of those where he was probably expected to come in immediately and have an immediate impact. It's not just quite happened, and I think. I think I agree with you, but I guess it's a wage thing. You know, he's probably not going to go to like a lower, a lower level Swedish club, even if it would be better for his career in terms of just week in week out games. Just mm. the difference in finances between perhaps what Oyekor could afford and maybe a, a mid table. Well, I know they're third bottom now, but you know what I mean. Kind of a a, a reputationally smaller club could afford. Um, so that, that's probably the problem with that that type of player. Um, and then it lends to questions of. You know, if he's getting that much money, why isn't he sort of um, performing? So it's almost um, self-fulfilling prophecy in a way if you don't hit the ground running. But there's no yeah. doubt there's a talent there. Um, I think it's fitness reasons and things like that why he hasn't necessarily played every game and gone in and gone in firing. And and it's also just partly the fact that there's a new manager. He's he had a bad start to the season. He's still probably trying to figure out his best team, his best lineup. And there's that pressure because you know he's um, he's that big name that they they've sort of got on 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 a season-long loan. So we'll see how it goes. But I have to say, I, I probably worry for how that signing is going to pan out at this moment in time because it's just it's just not quite clicked. Mm. And you, you mentioned artificial pitches there. And this is a topic I have a unusual fascination of, I think perhaps just because it feels so far removed from, uh, from the Premier League that I've sort of grown up on. And uh, when I was speaking with Vito, he mentioned that he really doesn't like the artificial surfaces and you know in the Superliga there's two teams that play with them but in Sweden you know it's it's pretty much half or maybe more uh speaking to players and coaches and managers and stuff like that how big a deal is it the fact that it's artificial pitches yeah I think it is quite a big deal um almost I think when you follow the league you almost accept it really uh if you know what I mean but there is a there is a split of between grass pitches and and artificial surfaces. Um, but I think sometimes you almost underestimate the, the impact it can have on home form versus away form. Uh, and it's definitely something that you have to factor in, I think, when you're looking at games and trying to sort of maybe predict them or figure out how they're going to pan out, um, just due to the fact that the surfaces are quite different. There's sometimes there's players that can't play certain games just because of the fact that it just doesn't suit their body. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely always an active conversation. I think it's just partly due to the region, isn't it? Isn't it, Henry? Just the weather and the climate means that it's kind of a necessity. But um, yeah, like you said, from an English background and perspective, it's something you don't really think about. Yeah, for sure. Although I, I would have thought playing through the summer, you know, you get the best best possible weather that the region is going to get. It could probably stretch to a few more grass pitches, couldn't they? Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, I mean, in... In the UK, from a non-league point of view, it's often done because of the community. Um, mm. It's often done to because then you can have a weather surface that can play at any time, um, easier to maintain, and then you can commercialise it. Uh, so we are seeing that in sort of the lower leagues of England to a certain extent uh, in the non-leagues. So that's always a you know there's a, there's a rise of artificial pitches actually below the football league in England, and 
sometimes people question that as well. And I, I'm probably a bit of a traditionalist in wanting maybe grass pitches, but I suppose even in England, that, that, that climate can be an issue and just that commercial aspect, it's easier to profit from it. If you look at FC Norgeland, for example, who play on an artificial surface, it allows them to train at the train at the stadium. So I think that, you know, that can be an advantage if you look at their home form this season. They look very comfortable playing there uh, and that probably helps. So th- there are pros and cons, but um, I-, I know from personal experience playing on uh, on Astro is definitely harder on the knees. And I guess when you're getting to the, the end of your of your career, that's probably uh, more of an issue than it would be for the, the whippersnappers. Yeah, 100%. But I think even even younger younger players, they can struggle with it. And uh, it's, it's, they, like you said, it's, 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 it's a lot more of an issue than sometimes we think about, if you know what I mean, especially mm. from an, an English perspective, I think. It's definitely something that can, you know, like you said, the, the impact on the body is significantly harder. Um, and it does have, I think, quite a high factor in determining games. I mean, you often look at, when you're looking at um, matches, things like weather, how that could impact the match, you know, if it's raining or if it's dry surface, things like that. I think I think you could argue that the actual pitch, what it's made out of is is, is, is almost bigger than that. In Denmark, FC Copenhagen have won five titles in 10 years. There have been three different title winners in the past three years, which I think is, uh, has shown the kind of good health of the league. But there have been accusations in the past that recently it was becoming a bit of a, uh, a bit of a one-team league in terms of uh, you know one team having much more financial muscle to dominate. I know Hacken won the, the league last season, but I think I'm right in saying Malmo have six titles in 10 years. Is it a similar situation there where you know they've got themselves into a position where they can get the European money more years than not, and that's kind of skewing the league? It was to a point, but of recent in recent years where we're we're in a good period at the moment where it's not not been the case. We've had I think since I've started the podcast, we've had multiple different champions actually. Um Oiko won the league, Eurogarden won the league, Bekwaken just won the league for the first time in their history last season. So there has been uh, a te- team challenging, which has been really good. And um although now it's looking like Malmo, for example, last year was the big talking point in Sweden, really, just their demise. Uh, had the worst season they'd had in sort of 15 to 20 years, finished seventh, really had a, no European football for them this season, which is almost unthinkable. They went through three managers and it was just really, I think, a season they'd probably rather forget. They seem to have reorganised themselves now, picking up the best manager probably in the league from from Kalmar. Um, and he's now got them six points clear at the top, more or less. And well, six points clear of Hacken anyway. I'm not sure how they're, depending on results tonight. So, so they are sort of getting back to it. And, and there is that worry that obviously without those finances, once if they win the league again, there's always that worry when the big a big team like that is kind of dominating that, oh, is, is this going to be a dynasty? But I think that one thing about Swedish football at the moment, and probably Norway as well, is like the, um, and I'd be interested to hear your point of view on this in terms of Denmark, but because of the uh, just general increase in quality of the leagues, youth players, the youth development, I think is, 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 is really, there's a lot of talents flourishing. I think that's allowed other clubs to just get a lot more finances and they're not, they're not having to sell to like, say, the top team. So what, one thing, for example, in Germany that you have is always, you know, Bayern tend to sort of um, eat their own, don't they? They tend to sort of take the best players in Germany uh, from the, the competing clubs, which is always a, a, an issue. Um, whereas now for lower teams in, in Sweden, they have the option to sell not to Malmo, who have the most money, or, you know, the teams with the bigger finances, they can sell to a Belgium, a Denmark, a, uh, you know, a Turkey or somewhere like that. So that that's allowed teams like, you know, we talked about North Shopping just then, Bergman Johansson, you know, they made a lot of money from him. I think it was 4 million euros. They they sold players at like Samuel Eddick Benro for a good chunk. 
they've made a lot of profit over the past few years selling players even to Russia before obviously the, the situation out there and um, that allows them then if you use that money well to to generate and that's what Beckel Hacken did you know they've got the Gothia Park obviously Academy and the Gothia Cup which is a world famous sort of youth tournament in Gothenburg um, but they've also bought and sold really quite cleverly in the last sort of five to ten years so that money that they've generated then they've spent it wisely and that's allowed them to grow the club into a team that has won the league and and they played Malmo at the weekend went toe to toe in their own in their own stadium and got a two two draw didn't look out of place so um, yeah there is always that there's one tradi- couple of traditional powerhouses I think the Stockholm teams would say something about that I mean EFK Göteborg are, are are a powerhouse in Swedish football but they've they've been in the doldrums you know now they're second to their city rivals Hacken as, as I mentioned who are, who are the champions IFK Gothenburg historically a massive massive team mm. so. There are those traditional powerhouses, but I think there is a good level of com- competitiveness in, in Swedish football. There's about four or five, I'd say, clubs who would consider themselves, you know, should be looking to win titles. And that lends itself to um, some competitive leagues. We had one league season about three, four years ago that went to, um, you know, went to the last day between, I think, three or four teams could have won the league on the last day, which was really an incredible end to a season. So that's one good thing about it. It's not been too... Um, bad in the years I've covered the the, the, the league anyway. Yeah, and it, if I look at the the Danish league this season, um, you know FC Nordsjælland are certainly not short of money because they've uh, they've worked out how to sell directly to the big leagues, and I think that's probably one area where Denmark has, has pulled away from everyone else in in Scandinavia at the moment. That they're selling now direct to the Premier League, direct to Liga. Uh, and I think that they're able to command bigger fees as a result. You know, Victor Christiansen to Leicester for 15 million, uh, Kamal Dean Suleiman 15 million to, to Liga, Jonas Wind sold to the Bundesliga, Jesper Lindstrom the same. So I, I, I think that that talent pipeline is is uh, that they're managing to skip the middleman in Belgium, uh, which is um, definitely helping them. But yeah, looking at the league this season, you've got two teams fighting out at the top, one point between them, and Copenhagen have almost they've been known in the past as being the team that, that has the, the biggest financial muscle but they they've really put a lot of work into their academy and are, are bringing players through now guys like um as we talked about Rooney Bardaji but uh, Elias Yella, Victor Christiansen and on the flip side FC Norgeland have been a team that have always focused on their talent pipeline and their academy and now they're managing to receive some some big transfer fees and it's going to be interesting to see if they alter their strategy and, and maybe this summer put some of that money to use and, and, and sign some uh, sign some more high-profile players. So yeah, it's definitely going to be um, interesting to see how that pans out. Before we wrap, I've got two more questions for you. One is about, uh, we talked about players who've moved from Denmark to Sweden, but we actually haven't talk, talked uh, about a particular manager. I wanted to ask you, how is Marty Sifuentes doing, uh, former Alborg manager, now at Hammerby? Yeah, well, there's there's good links between the two leagues uh, from that point of view. You've got um, uh, yeah, Henry Jensen, who's at Calgary at the moment, Danish manager. You've got, uh, as I mentioned, Glenn Riddersholm at Norshopping. And, and Sifuentes is another one who's in the Swedish league right now. He's at Hammerby. Um, <clears throat> again, not had a best of starts to this campaign. Uh, he had a really good start to his time in charge last season. They looked like they'd be the dominant force and looked like they'd challenge for the title in, in, Malmo's, um, in Malmo's sort of demise. But they got to a point sort of mid to mid to middle late season, about two thirds of the way through there, where they just they kind of almost ran out of ideas really, and 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 really struggled. Um, and it cost them the title in the end. They were they were close to going 
for the title. And really, I think they probably reflected hindsight. They could have been that. They could have been the hacking of that season. I think they 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 let that title slip a little bit. Not necessarily. They weren't expected to to win it or anything, but just they had they had started so well and they were really entertaining to watch. He brought in a quite a nice uh, style. He he had made use of some of the players that they had who maybe hadn't been um, doing so well. Maybe uh, he got the best out, for example, Nahir Basara, who was fantastic last season, um, and a few others. But this season, I mean, Hamby is one of the teams I mentioned where sometimes I wonder if the the aim of the club is to is, is maybe just to sort of make profit as well to a certain extent because they've they always have quite a big squad a lot of young talents there um really good if you want to see some young players but I think this season they're a little bit almost skewing slightly too young they've got almost too many new players so they've had quite a tough start this season they're currently kind of mid-table and just looking to to re-establish themselves after a bad start had a decent draw this weekend just gone against the FK Yotobog away but uh, yeah they're 10th at the moment and I think they probably would be expecting to do slightly better. So he's shown he's a bright manager. He's shown he's got good ideas. He's um, He communicates well. I think he understands Swedish because I've seen him doing interviews where he answers in English, but takes the question in Swedish. So hmm. from that point of view, I think, you know, as a Spanish manager, of course, um, that's very multilingual. So yeah, he he's a bright manager, definitely one of the brightest. And I think it's just a case of can he get them over the line and get some silverware. They're a bit spursy, if that makes sense. They kind of got that reputation in Hammerby of like, they, <laughs> they, they never they never quite make, they're, they're one of the three big Stockholm teams, but they're always sort of considered the um, the ugly brother, if that makes sense, of the of the family. So that, you know, they've, I think they've only won one title in the history of one or two. From that point of view, it's it's quite hard to get it over the line, if you know what I mean. They're not they're not a team that's expected maybe to win titles year in, year out, despite a really big fan base. But yeah, he's, he's done a good job. Got it. Yeah, I, I really liked him at, at Alborg. So good to know that he's uh, he's still in the job and still uh, working towards something. The final question I wanted to ask is uh, around uh, showpiece event. So if if anyone asks me, like, what's the, the game to go to in Danish football? There's lots of great derbies, I would say, uh, AGF, Bromby, Midtjylland against uh, Viborg. But really, it's uh, the Copenhagen derby is this kind of the thing I'll say, if you're going to watch one game, go to that and then build from there what's the equivalent in sweden if you had to pick one fixture and said this is the one that you need to go to to sell you on swedish football what would it be yeah well as a sort of as a gothenburg man probably um i'd probably have to admit it's a, it's a stockholm derby i think that you uh, there's a lot of decent derbies in in sweden you've got obviously malmo helsingborg who helsingborg at one point were a, a traditional big club down there in scanner um they're now kind of in the second tier and it's not as, it's not as big it's still passionate but it's not as um you know it's not kind of titles decided on it uh obviously of Koyotoburg they've got a lot of Gothenburg rivals now with Hacken's rise that's become a bit of a big derby but of course Hacken traditionally were quite a small team I mean going back sort of 10 20 years they, they were they, they're not a traditionally huge team so I think you have to look to the Stockholm clubs I'd say the big ones are AIK against Eurogarden um AIK obviously Hammerby and then New York Garden Hammerby they're the three that you'd probably say try and get to I've never actually been to a Stockholm derby myself but it's always you've always got sort of 30 to 40,000 in the in the stadium really passionate atmosphere you know Henry what it's like with with that those these leagues like TIFOs and flares and smoke bombs you can expect it all and often often those derbies are actually paused for the first five ten minutes just to clear the smoke so <laughs> always passionate and there's always everything you could expect from a big derby if there's one sort of maybe non-city rivalry based sort of a heated match um and it's a game i've been lucky enough to go to i'd say ef core uh, Jotterborg, fk gothenburg um against malmo 
they're two of the most successful teams in um, English, in, sorry, in Swedish football history, and that's always considered like a big game. They they don't really like each other. There's always big fan bases between the two of them, so it's always that's always a passionate affair. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say if you were just going to go to one, I'd, I'd have to say one of the Stockholm derbies, probably AIK Jurgen, um, as the two sort of more successful teams in Stockholm. Interesting. That's great. I was going to put you on the spot as to which uh, which Stockholm derby. So I'm, I'm glad that you uh, I'm glad you got off the fence to to yeah. pick one. <laughs> There's also the the Battle of the Bridge, which is uh, when Malmo and FC Copenhagen play each other. I know that's a, a feisty affair that occurred a few years back, and it doesn't sound like that's going to happen next season. But maybe the season after, we'll get that back, and and that could be. Uh, a chance to renew hostilities. We nearly had it last year. I think then we, if, 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 uh, I think we nearly had it in Europe at one point. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. But, um, didn't happen yeah, for whatever reason. Their game, I think they, they, they got knocked out. But if that, I think they would have played FC Copenhagen. Yeah, I think that's right. Oh, that would have been great. But listen, thank you so much for, for giving up your time, Jonathan. And it's a huge, huge pleasure to have you on here. I think that we've, probably have enough topics that we could do a part two at some point in the future but maybe we'll wait for a, a danish team and a swedish team to get each other in europe and and theme it around that but yeah it's been a, a great pleasure having you on and thank you for doing it yeah it was a pleasure to sit down with you my friend so no problem at all and uh, thanks for inviting me and as i say glad to see the podcast going so well Welcome to part two and we're going to pick through some of round 30 Super League action from last weekend because there was no shortage of drama. Now, when I was doing my Twitter previews of the game, I said that I thought that FC Copenhagen AGF had the potential to be box office and boy did it deliver on that. Finished 4-3 to FC Copenhagen, but what a dramatic game this was. Two early goals from Diogo Goncalves. There was a penalty, which... Uh, have to say the angle that was shown for the, the first few times it didn't look obvious, but then when you saw the reverse angle and you saw the stamp on the on the ankle by Bisek, it was yeah, it was nailed on. And uh, Goncalves scored, you know, fan- fantastic second goal, latching onto the end of a, some great work by Yella. And two uh, 0 up in the first half, it looked like they were home and hosed pretty much. They they were cruising, and out of nowhere, AGF pulled off a pretty amazing comeback. Patrick Mortensen scoring a header, Mikel Anderson scoring, and then going into the second half, six, seven minutes into the second half, Kevin Jakob put them ahead. And so from 2-0 down, they were 3-2 up and AGF really looked to have the momentum. Obviously, FC Copenhagen had gone through the cup final on the Thursday. And so with that came perhaps some heavy legs, I don't think they will have over-celebrated that. I think they'll have stayed on their regime. I think the league is so much more important than the cup. But they did look leggy at that point. And I thought AGF looked like they're going to score a fourth more than uh, Copenhagen score an equaliser. But cometh the hour, cometh the man. And the man for this game was was Kevin Dix, unquestionably. And he was playing centre-back. So again, out of his favoured role. And he, he was found himself in the, the left half space and he played an absolutely sensational through ball with the outside of his foot that just bent round the defender into the path of Jordan Larsen. And the Swedish striker just slammed it home. And at 3-0, you felt that was the shot in the arm that Copenhagen needed. And, and they took up the momentum from there. And it was Kevin Dix himself who scored the winner on the 86th minute. And you could see just what this meant to him. Former AGF player, it must be said, and he's been in and out of the team all season. He's never complained. He's played out of position. He's he's done what's needed to be. And this felt like 
just reward for his efforts. And I felt bad for AGF because I thought they battled really hard in this game. I thought that nine times out of 10, they'd have probably come away from this with a point. There was a, a chance earlier as well where Mikel Anderson hit the underside of the bar. So I thought it was very hard on AGF, but at the same time, to win the league, these are the sorts of games that you need to come through and you need to find that that uh, strength in adversity. And uh, FC Copenhagen at, at 3-2 down, you know, they heads could have dropped there and they could have thought it's over, but they came back and they pulled off the three points. And yeah, that was arguably one of the most entertaining games, if not the most entertaining game of the season so far. Two very high quality sides going at it. And yeah, great advert for the league. If you haven't watched it, go on the Super League website and at least watch the highlights because it was certainly worth it. The next twist in the title race took place on Monday night where FC Norgeland were hosting runners. And going into this game, FC Copenhagen were top of the table with 30 games played, 55 points on the board. Norgeland went into this on 51 points, but 29 games played. So a chance to reduce the, the gap to one point with a victory against runners. And FC Norgeland really came out of the blocks firing, but they put a lot of pressure on runners. They played some great football. They were playing it out from the back and eventually got the breakthrough through Benjamin Negrin, a guy who, as we talked about with Jonathan, hasn't really had many chances starting games and took his opportunity really nicely. There was quite a lengthy VAR check to see where the bid strip was offside. It, it looked touch and go, but the goal was given. And at that point, you wondered whether FC Norgeland would just go into cruise control. But pretty soon afterwards, they gave away a silly penalty, Svensson pushing Odie in the back and gave away a penalty with Ranners not really having a, a chance before that point. And Janssen scored from the spot and soon after, actually, in the beginning of the second half, Rannis had an amazing chance to go ahead, but Kian Hansen put in a superb sliding challenge to deny Bungards. And that was really all Rannis had after that. Benjamin Negrin again worked a really nice opportunity, got a shot away and didn't see it in real time, but on the replay, it looked pretty obvious. A penalty was given after VAR for, for a handball. Nuama scored the penalty and the pick of the bunch was probably the third goal actually. Diamande won the ball in midfield on the 82nd minute, burst forwards, kept going and got on the end of a low cross by Villazen. So he kind of made the goal and scored it. And on reflection, the game was pretty one-sided. I think the the, the scoreline perhaps flatters Randers because there was 73% possession for FC Norgeland, 11 shots to one from Randers and 703 passes to 259. So they really imposed their their style on runners. And I think that the coach will be very pleased with what he saw. There was lots of nice technical football, lots of, as I said, playing out from the back. And I thought that it was a real showpiece performance for them. And it puts them in a fantastic position ahead of the final two rounds, really, with, with all to play for. So it's going to be amazing to see how they get on from here. At the bottom of the table, there was no points whatsoever. Uh, in fact, even no goals between the three relegation candidates. Uh, Horsens played Silkeborg on the Friday night and they went down 1-0. And it was a brutal blow for them, the goal going in in the second minute of added time in the second half. And had to then cast an eye on the other teams in the relegation battle and hope that they slipped up. And slipped up they did. Lungby were defeated very heavily at home, 4-0 against Odense. And Alborg, without Alan Souza, went down 2-0 at home to FC Michelland, who now more or less have that European playoff spot wrapped up, it looks like. And so the teams at the bottom remain separated by three points. Uh, Lungby bottom of the table with 24, 
Horsens above them on 27 and then Alborg just outside the relegation zone on goal difference alone on 27 points. So the drama there is just postponed to the next two rounds. And what do we have coming up next week? Of course, Lungby Alborg, an absolutely massive, massive game. Lungby need to win that to have any chance of survival. I think if Alborg win, they're almost safe, just given the number of points per game teams are picking up at that end of the table I think yeah Lungby have to win that if they want to survive and Horsens go to Odense that's not going to be an easy game for them and that's the Friday game the one game we haven't talked about yet was uh, Viborg against Bromby and this was one where I think most people were expecting Viborg to grab the three points here but it certainly didn't go easily for them Hakon Evien scored for Bromby and going into the final 10 minutes, it looked like they might come away with a, an unlikely victory at, at a place where many teams have struggled this season. But Clint Lehmans, so often an attacking force for, for Viborg, popped up in the 80th minute. Lovely cross by Jeppe Groning and uh, Lehmans headed home and, and that was that. One all. A point doesn't do much for Viborg in the, in the title race. I think there was still you know an outside chance that they could contend for the title. I think now... Uh, five points back with two games to go. I think that's unlikely, but they're in a very good position for the uh, either the silver or the or the bronze medal and a place in Europe next season, which uh, in the cold light of day is a fantastic return for a, a, a team of their budget, especially given the players they've lost. So decent result for Viborg and they'll be looking forward to the remaining two fixtures where they are going to play the role of kingmaker they play FC Copenhagen and and uh, FC Norgeland and so how they perform in those games could still be absolutely pivotal to the direction of the the title race so some exciting games coming up I can only assume that it's a uh, it's a bank holiday in Denmark I know it's one in the UK because uh, we've got a game on Friday which as I mentioned was OB against uh, Horsens, and then we've got a bunch of games on Monday. So, uh, Silkeborg against FC Micheland, uh, Lungby Alborg, Viborg FC Copenhagen, and Bromby against FC Norgeland. And then on Tuesday, it's Ranners AGF. So, two more rounds of Super League action, plenty more twists and turns, and crazy really going into the final two rounds that nothing's decided none of the none of the key things are decided relegation not a single team down yet champions still two potentially three teams who could win it uh european playoff nope not decided so it's all up for grabs and i think that's what makes it so exciting so buckle up for the final two rounds and i look forward to speaking to you next time on danish dynamite and actually on that regard there will be one more podcast this season, uh, I'm pleased to announce, and it will be after the season has wrapped, before the Euro playoff. Uh, so the episode should be coming out on or around Wednesday, the 7th of June. And I've got a special episode planned where I've got a couple of guests. We're going to do an end of season awards show, a bunch of different categories, and we're going to decide on our team of the season, decide who the manager of the season is and all, all sorts of different categories. So come back and join us. First week of June, that's going to be that, that special end of season wrap up. In the meantime, take it easy, enjoy the bank holiday and I'll speak to you next time.